Thank you. Well, uh, my wife Julia, my wife Julia has just had our fourth, and in my opinion, final child. And this is a picture of of her. There she is. She, her name's Emma. She does actually have legs. It's just that you can't see them on this uh, particular photo. Uh, we've actually got four children. Uh, this is a picture of my wife, Julia, and our four girls. Uh, there they are. And uh, it's great to be back with you. I think I was here exactly in this room exactly a year ago. And uh, I think if you were here, you may remember I told you how my story is that when I was 16 years old, at a time when I didn't go to church, I didn't know anybody my age who did, I was invited along out of the blue to Wimbledon Baptist Church by a girl called Caroline Payne. And uh, all 20 of us went along to this church. Uh, A number of months later, on the 14th of April, 1985, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, since that day, I think the following day, I, I was in the lower sixth form at school and I tried to sort of tell a few people. I was quite excited about what had happened to me. So I started to talk to them about Jesus. And I went on a series of kind of adventures of faith that went something like this. Um, I pray in the morning before school. I didn't know how to pray, but I knew that in Winnie the Pooh, uh, Christopher Robin would kneel by the end of his bed. So that's what I did. I kneel by the end of my bed and I said, dear God, and I'd pray for a friend from school like, dear God, please tomorrow, uh, or please, uh, please may I be standing in the lunch queue and, and, and when uh, we're about to go in, may Nick Pimlock come and stand next to me and then may I, may I have a chance to talk to him about Jesus. Amen. And so I would then be in the lunch queue, and then, you know, there's no sign of Nick Pimlot. And then all of a sudden, as I'm about to walk in the dining hall, he would appear. Oh, that's amazing, just like in the prayer. Uh, so, that's, uh, you know, and then, so I, we'd then talk, I'd had the conversation with him about Jesus, and then the following time I'd pray maybe for Andy de Groot or Anthony Vandersteen, or basically whenever I prayed one of these prayers for a particular friend, I'd always have an opportunity that day to talk to this particular person, whoever it was. And this went on for two years. So as you can imagine, after two years of answered prayer, my faith was absolutely sky high. And uh, a number of people in the school started to become Christians. And um, uh, the teachers became aware of what was happening, you know, in the sixth form. And then they started to give us house assemblies. Then they gave us whole school assemblies. And then it really got out of hand. Um, For example, one time, it was a double period of A-level history. And uh, Mr. Houston, the head of the history department, started the lesson. He wasn't a Christian. It's not a Christian school. But he started the lesson by saying, "Um, Adrian, how would you like to tell us all today about speaking in tongues? Which was kind of a strange question because we were supposed to be doing Tudors and Stuarts. Um, But that was, you know, kind of how it went. And then the high point of my time at school was just before we got our A-level results. When uh, in the sixth form common room, my friend... James Lewison accused Julian McCorkadale of only becoming a Christian because it was trendy. And I thought, yes, yes. It is now so popular to become a Christian that, that he's accusing people of feigning conversion just to be cool. I thought, that is, that is great news. So anyway, I, I've continued to share people, share the gospel with people as I've gone through life over the last 20 years. And you might say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's a nice story. You know, it's good to hear that. You know what I think? When I think about my life, I think of one person, Caroline Payne. Because humanly speaking, if you were to ask me, how come I'm in Christ today? 
It's because one 15-year-old girl took courage in her hands with 20 of her friends outside McDonald's in Warple Road, London, SW19. And she simply said, how would you all like to come with me to my church on Sunday evening? And that was a crucial moment in my life. She, Caroline Payne, communicated the gospel in her world. And that's what I've been asked just to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning, how you and I can communicate the gospel day by day, month by month, year by year. So let's start by going on another journey. Come with me, if you will, to Charlotte, North Carolina, in the sweltering summer of 1934. There, in a tin hut, is Dr. Mordecai Ham preaching the gospel every night with sawdust as a carpet. And for the last month, a group of local Christians have been inviting a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball to come to these meetings. But for a whole month, the 16-year-old farm boy has been saying no, telling anybody who asks him that he wants nothing to do with such nonsense. Folks, it was at this moment that Albert McMakin made his mark upon world history. You see, Albert had already built up a relationship, a friendship with this teenager as the pair of them worked alongside each other at Albert's dad's farm, where Albert's dad grew prize-winning tomatoes. And so, Albert asked the teenager, now would you like me to try the North Carolina accent? No. Okay, only, only the leader of the church wants to know me. But I, I need to obey. So I, I asked the teenager, why don't you come out and hear our fattened preacher? Or something like that. And the teenager replied, I, I won't carry on with the accent because I shall get carried away. Um, the teenager replied, is he a fighter? I like a fighter. Then Albert threw in the added incentive that if the teenager said yes he would allow the teenager to drive the McMakin family vegetable truck to the meeting. Folks, the offer of the truck swung it. So the teenager drove the truck to the meeting. He then sat at the back of the meeting. He listened to Dr. Mordecai Ham, and he was captivated by the preacher's message. After attending the meetings for a whole month, he finally made his way to the front. He was the very last person that night. 400 people came to the front to receive Christ. He was the very last. He stood at the end of the crowd, and a local tailor called J.D. Previtt came up alongside him and prayed with him to receive Christ. Folks, that teenager is still alive. He is now 91 years old. But in the last 65 years, He's probably led more people to Jesus Christ than anyone who has ever lived. And he's probably spoken face to face about Jesus to more people than anyone else has ever spoken to anyone about anything. And his name is Dr. Billy Graham. Folks, few people on earth will ever have heard of Albert McMakin. But in heaven, Albert is going to look out at millions of people who found Christ through Billy Graham. And Albert McMakin is going to reflect forever on the results 
of one moment from his life when he said to a 16-year-old farm boy who loves baseball, why don't you come out and hear our fighting preacher? Folks, not everyone here is going to be called to be a Billy Graham. But every single one of us in this room this morning can be an Albert McMakin. And all Albert McMakin did was he communicated the gospel in his world, which was the kind of tomato world, but that enabled Billy Graham to communicate the gospel to the whole world. How cool is that? And you know, when I hear stories like that, I think to myself, yeah, that's great. There's, there's nothing else quite as exhilarating to live for, is there? I think to myself. And you and I reaching our world, helping people get to heaven, helping people avoid hell, that seems like a pretty exhilarating idea. And furthermore, the fact is, you know, when we read our Bibles, it is clear that this is something that we are called to do. So, hang on a minute. If I am excited about the idea of telling others, and I believe that I should be telling others, here's my question. Why don't I do more of it? Why are so many of us Christians reluctant to communicate the gospel to our world? Well, it seems to me, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but it seems to me that many Christians live in what I call the valley of disappointment. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. This little um, sort of mountain range here um, is a bit like your Christian life. Let's imagine you start off over here, and I don't know, maybe you're 14 years old, and your faith comes alive over here on the right-hand side as you look, and you, I don't know, maybe you've been brought up in a Christian home, and uh, all of a sudden, in the summer holidays, you go to a camp or a Bible week, and your parents' faith becomes yours, and uh, you suddenly start to... uh, personally have an experience of God. It's not just my family believes this stuff and I don't disagree. No, I'm excited. I feel I do know Jesus personally. And you go back to your school and you sit next to the same kid that you sat next to the previous five years and he thinks, oh, you're different. Why are you different? What did you do this summer? And you tell him. And then you start to climb what I call the hill of expectation. Because your friend from school comes along to the church youth group. Ooh. It's pretty exciting. And you climb the hill of expectation, thinking, maybe my friend will become a Christian. Now, here's my question. Where is that friend now? Did they become the most going for it, sold out, zealous Christian? Are they going on with God today? Um, No, not really. It all kind of blew over. And it was a bit disappointing at the time. And so you went down into a little trough of disappointment. But of course, you didn't stay there for long because you're a good Christian. So throw your story on. Now you are in your first term at Birmingham University. Or maybe you're at your first term working in central Birmingham in an office somewhere. And something happens to you that has never happened to you in the whole of your Christian life before. You make a friend, and they are genuinely interested in your Christian faith. They actually ask you questions. They raise the subject with you, not the other way around. And you think, my goodness, I've been a Christian now 
I've been a Christian now for four years. Or I've been a Christian now for eight years. I've been a Christian now for 13 years. Or I've been a Christian now for 20 years and I've never actually led a friend to Christ. But now, it kind of feels like I'm finally going to break my duck. My friend right now is on Alpha. And you just sense it's going to happen. My friend's going to become a Christian. And you're at the very top of the mountain of expectation. But think back now. What happened next? Did your friend become a Christian? Well, they kind of prayed a prayer and it all kind of fizzled out. Or, I don't know, they dropped out of the Alpha course. Or somehow or other, it didn't kind of work out the way that you hoped it would. And so what happened to us at that point? If we think back, what happened to us was we kind of slid down into what I call the valley of disappointment. Now, the significant thing about the Valley of Disappointment is there's so many Christians live there. And of course, in the Valley of Disappointment, it's that much harder to, you know, you're, you're that much more reluctant the next time. And so, what happens in the Valley of Disappointment is actually critical to the future of the church in Britain. What happens in the Valley of Disappointment is this. As Christians... We decide what our gifting is. Because in the Valley of Disappointment, we review our long and unsuccessful evangelistic career. And there is absolutely nothing to show for our efforts. However, there are lots of other equally biblical, equally important, equally worthwhile things that we can do within the life of the church. And when we do those things, we do see some definable results. So, for example, let's imagine that it's your job to put out the chairs here in this hall on a Sunday morning. And so every Sunday you put out the chairs, and then once a year, one of the elders says, Thanks. Now, after several years of chair ministry, you have two things that you can see for your efforts. Number one, every Sunday the people are not sitting on the floor because of me. Number two, I am now receiving annual feedback from the, from the elders. And so understand, I mean obviously I'm making a joke of it to make the point. But I, you know, understandably, we do, you know, we're doing this worthwhile thing and at least we can see there's something to show for it. But we look back on the evangelistic thing, and basically there's just nothing appears to have happened. And so we decide, oh, well, obviously, you know, if I was gifted in evangelism, I would have seen more, something would have happened. But seeing as it didn't, perhaps my gifting lies over here. Now, can you see how if all British Christians make the same decision, we end up with a great church? But we're kind of, you know, just us, kind of. And the whole of the rest of the nation is kind of doing their thing, and we're doing our thing. And that is not what Jesus died for. And so, what we're looking for is something a little bit different. And the reality of life is that if we were to just to back up and ask the question, what was it at the very top of the mountain of expectation that we so wanted to happen? That when it didn't happen, it caused us to get disappointed. I think the answer is obvious. Our friend didn't get saved. And I just want to put it to you for a few minutes. That actually in the Bible, Jesus' definition 
of success in evangelism is not simply about people being saved. Now, before you respond to that statement, just take a look at this. I want to suggest to you that every single person in Birmingham, everyone in Britain is somewhere on this scale, somewhere between being at the very bottom of the scale and somewhere between the very top of the scale, which is the vast majority of people here this morning who've already decided to give their lives to Christ. And I want to suggest to you that what success in evangelism really is, is wherever people are at on that scale, that through their encounter with you, their picture of the church and their picture of the gospel is slightly improved, so they see the gospel message is increasingly relevant to them. And what that means, if you were to accept that idea, is that if you meet somebody at point one or point two in the scale, and by the time you leave them, they are one step further on. You've moved them from point two to point three. That is success in evangelism. Or you meet them at point five, and you work alongside them for, I don't know, three years in the cubicle next to yours, and by the time they move to Bradford, they're at point eight. I want to suggest that is success in evangelism. So we need to see that evangelism actually is a process. There's no reason why you should believe this unless it's in the Bible. But Jesus' main teaching point on evangelism is that it is a process of sowing and reaping. So, for example, think of the story in John chapter 4. Maybe you're familiar with this tale where Jesus is on a journey from the south of the country to the north of the country. He has to go through a place called Sychar. And he stops at a well in Sychar, and there is a woman at the well. It's a hot country, so he's, he wants a drink of water. So he asks this woman at the well, can I have a glass of water, please? And I'm always amazed when I read John 4 by the speed of Jesus' progress. Because within the space of 30 verses, we've gone from, can I have a glass of water, please, to the whole town coming out to hear the gospel. And I look at that. And I've got my orange highlighter pen. And I've got my pink for different themes. I've also got blue and green, different themes. And I'm looking through this, you know, how do you do it? How, the, how does the master evangelist go from, can I have a glass of water, please, to the whole town coming out to hear the gospel? I want to know the answer. And, of course, when you do read John 4, the fact is that during the conversation with the woman, Jesus, who's never met this woman before, actually says to her, you know what? You've had five husbands, and the man who you're now living with isn't your husband. And it's true. And so I always imagine, after this kind of amazing direct hit, revelation, word of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, prophecy, I always imagine that when they're kind of debriefing Jesus and the disciples after they leave Sychar, the whole town has come out to hear the gospel, and they're... I always picture them kind of walking along the road. I don't know if you've ever seen Franco Zeffirelli's film about Jesus of Nazareth. And and when Jesus goes along the road, the disciples follow behind in a kind of flanking formation like the red arrows. Have you seen this before? So he walks along like this, and they're kind of flanked like this. And I always imagine that Jesus kind of talks, like because obviously it's quite hard to talk to people who are standing behind you. And so I always imagine that he talks over his shoulder like this. So he says, you know, guys, why do you think it was that, you know, we hit such a home run at Sychar? What already cooked at Sychar today? And maybe Peter would say, well, um, Rabbi, uh, you, you had one of your words of knowledge. And then Jesus says, yes, I think you'll find uh, Peter it was rather a good one. And, and then Peter would say, yes, yes, Master, it was. But that isn't actually the conversation. When you read it in your actual Bible, same thing, red arrows walking along the road like this. The conversation goes like this. Jesus says, oh, thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you reap the benefits of their labor. And they always think, 
Why does he say that? Where's that coming from? Well, I think Jesus says this. Because in the conversation that he's just had with the woman at the well, this woman has said something that in all my years of trying to share Christ with non-Christian people, no one has ever said anything to me that even approaches what this woman said when in the conversation she says to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes... He will explain everything to us. Now, if you can bear with me, I would like to share with you how I see this conversation in terms of football. Okay? In terms of football. Jesus is like a center forward. The ball is out on the wing with the winger. The opposition goalkeeper has inexplicably left his goal and wandered upfield for no apparent reason. Highly irresponsible goalkeeping. The ball comes over from the winger and lands conveniently at Jesus' feet near the penalty spot. Jesus is presented with an open goal. Now picture the scene in John 4. Jesus arrives at the well. He says, can I have a glass of water, please? They have a conversation in which the woman says, Oh, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus hears this and thinks, okay, she's waiting for the Messiah to come. I'm the Messiah. And so he says, I who speak to you am he. He just kicks the ball over the goal line, into the back of the net, whistle blows, end of the game, final score, devil nil, Jesus won. An away win in Sikar. Now, what's my point? My point is this. This woman is not a point one on the scale. She left point one years before. She went past point two. She sailed past point three. She climbed those steps up to point four, point five. Point. She's right up there in nosebleed territory. She already believes the Bible. She believes the Bible is true. She's waiting for the Messiah to come. And so, Jesus reflects on the fact, as he's talking to the guys, as they walk along the road, that when you go to a place like Sikar, even if you meet a woman like her, who's actually leading an immoral life, it doesn't really matter, because even someone like her, she already believes a lot of Bible. She believes the Bible. She believes in the, in the Messiah's coming. She could have quite a sophisticated conversation about worship. Oh, should it be here? Should it be there? You know, so she can talk about worshiping God. She believes the Bible. This woman is way up the scale. And so understandably, Jesus' conclusion is, you know, isn't it true that what we see in our agricultural society every day, which is one bloke sows all the seed, several months later, another bloke turns up and reaps, one sows, another reaps. That's that principle that we all see in agriculture. It's true, lads, of evangelism, isn't it? Because we didn't sow the seed with that woman, somebody else did. Here's what Bruce Milne says in his commentary on John's Gospel. As Jesus has just demonstrated in his winning of the Samaritan woman, the time for reaping is at hand. All the generations of preparation within the life of Israel, the witness of the seers, the prophets, the priests, and the leaders, culminating, he says, in the ministry of John the Baptist, 
have brought the harvest to fruition. When Jesus says, one sows and another reaps, verse 37, he's probably thinking, Bruce Milne says, specifically of John the Baptist, who'd ministered recently in the area, chapter 3, verse 23. The prophets have sown the word of God into Samaria for so many centuries. John the Baptist was here only recently. So much so that your average woman at your average well is waiting for the Messiah to come. Jesus' conclusion is this. Evangelism is a process, guys, of sowing and reaping. In fact, all the analogies that Jesus used for evangelism, all were processes and all of them took time. The analogies were, if you're interested, you probably already know, fishing, sowing, farming, and searching for lost items. All of these processes took time. Now, here's the good news. If you were to emotionally, intellectually, spiritually buy in to Jesus' principle, you could lift off yourself all the self-imposed pressure that you have been living under all these years, thinking of yourself as having failed in evangelism. You could lift off that, and you could start to think, hang on a minute, if evangelism is a process... Hang on, if, it's a, if it really is a process, then I can be part of a process. You're not asking me to say, thus, no, 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 you just be part of a process. Well, in that case, every single one of us can not only get involved, but we can actually start to feel good about our contribution. When you moved into your house, the woman next door to you, she said to her sister the previous Christmas, all Christians are hypocrites. Two years later, she left the house where she was living next door to you, she no longer thinks all Christians are hypocrites because you're not. I'm saying to you that is success in evangelism. She moved from point one to point two. And every single one of us can be part of this process. Let's imagine there's a hundred of us in this room right now. Let's imagine for each one of a hundred of us, there are ten people somewhere in the world today who are closer to faith in Christ than when we first met them. Some of them have already crossed the line of faith. Many of them haven't. Probably most of them haven't. But that's 100 times 10. That's 1,000 people. Some of them walking around Birmingham right now. Some of them asleep in their beds. Some of them elsewhere in the world. 1,000 people who you guys represent, who you reached out to, who are closer to faith in Christ than when you first met them. I suggest to you we could start to become just a little bit encouraged about that. Obviously not too much because we're British. We wouldn't want excessive levels of encouragement or inappropriate levels of encouragement. We must guard against the danger of emotionalism because that's a thoroughly bad thing. What I'm saying is this. You can go ahead and communicate the gospel in your world and you can feel like you're a raving success while you're doing it, even if your friend has not yet become a Christian. So let's just finish this morning by looking at the practicalities. You might say, okay, I understand the theory. That is in the Bible. I do remember those stories. How am I going to do it? Well, let's just think about some of the practicalities. Leisure time. Question for you. A little bit of interaction required. Hands up, please, in response to this. How many of you, hands up, enjoy doing what you enjoy doing? Okay, if you don't have your hand up, you're not a human being. Okay. Folks, we all have energy for what we enjoy doing. I put it to you that when I, maybe you're like me, and and perhaps you've had this experience if you're a parent, you come in from work, you're at your most tired, you're most exhausted, you've just put the kids to bed, you know they're not really in bed. They're just upstairs. 
They could be anywhere upstairs. But you're just kidding yourself that they're in bed. Technically, you've done what you were supposed to do, but you know in reality that it hasn't happened. But you're blanking it out. And you're sitting there in front of the telly, and you can't even see what's on the screen. It's too far away. It slits in your eyes, and you're, you're like there with your remote control, and you're kind of watching it, and you're, but you're not really watching it. And then at that moment, I put it to you, if the phone rings, and you can answer the phone without moving, you find the phone, you answer the phone. At that moment, the person on the phone says, Oh, would you like to come and then they mention a specific interest or activity when they mention that particular thing because that is your particular thing. You suddenly feel energy for what they are saying. Now, here is my question. What is your one particular thing that you would feel energy for? So I know, for example, for our host Jonathan here, it would be line dancing. Now, you might well think, you know, I would personally be embarrassed to go line dancing with Jonathan. I feel bad that the guy who leads our church is into this thing. I I just feel, I I have a hard time with that. It's a struggle for me. But, (laughs) but, the reality is that there's something else that you might enjoy doing. It could be upholstery. It could be that you want to learn how to speak conversational French. It could be basketball. It could be motorbikes. It could be fishing. I have absolutely no idea. You might just want to get together with a group of people once a month and discuss a particular book that you've all read. I don't know what it would be, what your thing is, but there's something that you would feel energy for. Here's the amazing thing. The person who is sitting next to you right now, their thing would not even vaguely interest you. But your thing... So there are people, aren't there? There are people who like military history. And I've got all my soldiers in little rows. And you've got all your soldiers in little rows. And I've got my marble and you've got your marble. And then I roll my marble. I knock over some of your little men. And then you roll your marble. You knock over some of my little men. And then there are other people who are watching that and they say, that's sad. I said, that's sad. What we want to do is we want to reenact it in real life. I said, these guys, they dress up in chain mail. They put on armor and they get in their Volvos and they drive down the M5 to Wiltshire on a Saturday. This is great. Can't believe we're going to do a reenactment. Driving down to Wiltshire, park up somewhere in a field off the M4. They get out. No one else is there, just you and your mate. And you put on, and then you sort of declare, oh, I am Arthur. And then you kind of slash around. Your mate kind of slashes back. And after about five minutes, your mate falls over and says, Oh, whoa, thrice whoa, thou hast slain me, thrice whoa. And you wake up, and you've got to get up, and you kind of embrace, clank the chain mail. And then you get back in the car, and you drive back to Berlin. You say, that was great. Let's do it next Saturday. Yeah. That's their thing. I've got a friend, and um, I was just walking along the street with him the other day. This is a while ago, actually, and um, we're going to the shop to get something to eat. And uh, he's on his phone, on his mobile phone, and he finishes the call. This is not an exaggeration. Finishes the call, and his response to the phone call is this. He goes, yes, yes, yes. And I, you know, I can't not comment such an odd response. And I'm thinking, wow, this is huge. You know, maybe... I don't know, maybe his brother's become a Christian or something amazing has happened. And so I said, well, you know, what's happened? And he said, yes, yes, 
so-and-so has become an Apple Mac user. Yes! That's his thing. That is his thing. But there's something you're passionate about. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But the good news is that there are other people who live in Birmingham who are just as passionate as you are about whatever interests you. And here's the good news. They'd actually like to meet you. Because if they met you, then you could talk about books together. Or you could go fishing. Or you could play basketball. Or you could go to an upholstery evening class. Or learn conversational French. Or whatever your thing is. They would actually like to meet you. And you could then communicate the gospel in your world and feel like a success while you're doing it and enjoy it. Wouldn't that be great? You could have the time of your life while you're doing it. What that would mean is that for Christian leaders, getting Christians to do evangelism is no longer a case of kind of whipping them, saying, come on. You know you've got to do evangelism. Rah, come on, take that, take that, take that. Come on, I'm going to get you. Like you don't have to do the whipping thing anymore. You can just say to people in the church, you can just say, this is what I do at Christchurch London. I say, I would just, I'd just love to know what you enjoy doing. And they say, is that a trick question? I said, no, no, it's a genuine question. I'd like to know what you enjoy doing. And they said, well, I've never told anyone before. Not, not in church anyway. I said, that's okay. Tell me now. And they kind of look around. I like motorbikes. Oh, that's great, because actually there are other people in London who like motorbikes. So you could do motorbike maintenance with them. You would be enjoying yourself, and they'd be keen to meet you. You can release people. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing when it happens. So, for example, um, when it comes to leisure time, even if we're the busiest we've ever been, probably every single person here would say that they're the busiest they've ever been right now. I would say that I'm the busiest I've ever been right now. But even if I'm the busiest I've ever been, every one of us can find at least one evening a month. So, for example, um, I've got a Christian friend called Onde Agogabi. He's a Nigerian civil engineer. And if he were here this morning, and we were doing an interview, and I said, Onde, how come you're in Christ today? He would say, at the end of the day, it all started with badminton. See, Onde uh, used to go down with his partner to play uh, badminton at the leisure center. One time he goes down to the leisure center, there's this other couple there, and so they're kind of swishing away, you know, like you do. I don't really know how you do it like this. And then at the end of the game, it just occurs to Onde that the other couple have not sworn during the game. And he thinks, you know, there's a lot of scope for swearing in badminton. This is a bit weird. So, you know, obviously he feels the need to ask. He says, look, you know, it's a bit of a weird question. I know that you don't know, you don't, well, I don't know you, but um, just notice you didn't swear during the game. Explanation? And they said, well, you know, I, 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 as it happens, we're Christians. I suppose it's true. You, you got me. You got me. I don't swear. I mean, it's, it's a fair cop. And so this Christian couple, they invite Onde along to the New Frontiers Regional Celebration. It's not even an evangelistic event. And so Onde goes to this thing, and uh, in the worship, you know, as everybody's singing, Onde is slain in the spirit, which means he kind of falls over under the power of God. He's lying there in the worship, and he's converted on the floor. So he would be an example of somebody who went up the scale very quickly. Because all he knows is that Christians don't swear and that they play badminton. Which is not very much to go on. Okay, those we work with. Next big part of life. 
I continually meet Christians who feel condemned that they do not witness on the job more than they do. In my case, um, in my previous working life, I worked in a highly pressurized 24-hour newsroom. Folks, if I had gone around the newsroom while we were on air, merrily seeking to witness to people about Jesus, I would not have been doing my job very well. My job was to communicate sports news. Nor, in my case, would it have been appropriate for me to use the medium of my work, which was sports news, to communicate the gospel. However, I could easily have done so. For example, one of the things I used to do is I used to read the classified football results. It would have been easy for me to say something like this at quarter to five on a Saturday afternoon. I could have said, Barclays Premiership. Aston Villa 1, Manchester United 0. Birmingham City 2, West Ham United 0. Everton 1, but God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that if any of you listening to this broadcast should believe in him, you won't perish, but you can have eternal life. I could easily have said that. And if I had said that, I can tell you I could have gone back to the church prayer meeting the following night and I could have said, guess which verse I managed to get into the classified football results. And they would have said, oh, Adrian, we don't know which verse was it this week. And I could have said, well, John 3.16. They could have said, oh, Adrian, you're so radical. I could have said, yes, I am radical. I'm such a radical, radical Christian. And, but you know what? If I'd done that, I would have got the sack. No more worky. It would have been all over. So I viewed my working life primarily as, the, as an opportunity, really. My goal, my ambition was that everybody in my department and my boss, that they would all think of me primarily as one thing, a team player. That was my goal. I wanted them to think, oh yeah, Adrian Holloway, he pulls for the team. I wanted to build up such a big account in the bank of credibility, by the way I did my job, week by week, month by month, year by year, that eventually, when work-related social opportunities came round, a Friday in the summer after work, we go across the road, we loosen our ties, and somebody asked me, what are you doing this weekend? And then I mentioned the church thing. At that point, they're curious. And they say, Okay, so actually tell me about that. And they're almost curious. That was my goal. I suggest that should be our goal, that they would be favorably disposed to us because of the way we do our job. Last thing is other people we come into contact with. For example, neighbors. Folks, here's the good news. If you ever move house... In our culture, it is still socially acceptable to say hello to a few neighbors either side. You knock on their door and you say, hello, I'm your new neighbor. We're having a housewarming barbecue. Would you like to come? And in this country, people will not be offended. They will not say, and who on earth do you think you are to impose your barbecue on me? They won't say that. Here's the worst thing that can happen. They'll think, oh, friendly person. They'll just think you're friendly. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So when we moved house in 2001, we did that thing. We knocked on the doors all around. And how do I know people weren't offended by the invitation? Because when we had the barbecue, I had 100 people in my back garden. And I want to encourage you, you know, once you're having the barbecue, please don't feel obliged to preach at the barbecue. 
I mean, you can preach, but don't feel obliged to preach because you want to, don't you? You want to preach at the barbecue. You've got them there. The hundred neighbors are there. They're all in there. They're eating your food. They're in your house. You've been praying. You've been prayer walking in the garden for weeks and weeks and weeks, waiting for this moment. And finally, they're all there. It's like a captive audience. You know, your, your daughter's locked the back gate. They're there. And you're thinking, you know, you, know, you, you want to kind of get up on a chair and then you want to kind of, you know, do your little preach and then maybe get out a bun and do a quick kind of visual aid uh, to explain the gospel. And then you want to do your appeal. And you say, now, if you believe what I'm saying this morning, come to the grill, come to the grill, come to the grill, come to the grill. And then you've got this vision every night you go to bed, this vision of all your neighbors kneeling on your patio, holding their buns in repentance. I, I want to say, look, you can preach at the barbecue. You can preach, but you don't have to. It's like an option. I was comfortable just building bridges of relationship. What happened to the 100 neighbors in the garden in the summer of 2001? Of those 100, four came on the Alpha course, of which one became a Christian and is going on with God today. Do you know, when we moved to London six years ago, we did the same thing, knocked on all the doors, invited people over. One guy... This is Chris, five doors down on the right-hand side. He said to me, Adrian, can I just tell you why, why I'm coming to your barbecue? I said, sure, Chris, why is that? He said, because I have lived in this road for 25 years, and nobody has ever done what you're doing. And I'm thinking to myself, Chris, all, I, all it really is, is going down the Fulham Palace Road and going down to Tesco's Express, I'm going to buy some buns and some burgers, maybe some mustard. It's not rocket science. No one has ever done what you're doing. And when I, when I was talking to Chris, my neighbor, I was thinking about that verse in the book of Acts, Acts 17, verse 26, where Paul says to the Athenians, he says, God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. But God has set the whole thing up so that people are ready to reach out to him because he's not far from each one of us. And so let me tell you, about a quick story about our next door neighbor. Now, I will have to change her name because she's a barrister in the high court um, in the Old Bailey, and uh, I'll call her Fiona. And uh, Fiona is a great friend of ours. She comes out of our house one morning. She's got these two huge legal drag bags that she has. To, she's got all the defense papers for a case. She does something that all of us have done many times. She realizes that she's left her keys in the house. So she goes back, leaves the bags, goes back, gets her keys, by the time she's come back out to the, to the pavement, the bags have gone. So this is a full-on panic. These are the defense papers for a trial in process at the Old Bailey at the time. She's got her handbag. She's trying to find a mobile phone. She wants to phone the police. She's thinking, where on earth are these bags gone? She's in a complete panic. She rings on number 23, which is us. I'm not home, but Julia, my wife, is home. Judy comes and answers the doors. Fiona's like, Judy, Judy, I've lost my bags. Have you seen my bags? Where are my bags? Have you seen my bags? And Judy's like, well, you know, I'm sorry, Fiona. I've been upstairs in the children's bedroom. I, I don't know where your bags are. So Fiona's like in a complete panic, trying to find a mobile phone, trying to find 999. Judy walks out of the house, and she just prays in her mind. She says, Lord, where are Fiona's bags? And she feels God say, look up the top of the street. Judy looks up the top of the street. She feels God say, they're in that van. Now, I should explain, our, our, um, our road in London is like a typical terrace street, long terraced houses, cars parked, and there's a van at the very top of the road. And so Judy just starts walking up to this van. Now, I have to say, if it had been me, 
And I feel God saying they're in the back of that van at the top of the street. After about two paces, I would have stopped and thought, nah, they're not going to be at the back of the van. But Judy's a much better Christian than me. So she goes all the way to the top of the street. All the way, she walks all the way out there. Eventually, she gets to the top of the street. There's a bloke sitting in the cabin of this van. So she knocks on the window. Bloke thinks, who's this strange woman, winds down the window. Judy looks him straight in the eye. She says, have you got two bags in the back of your van that don't belong to you? And the bloke goes, oh, no. He says, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. Judah says, well, I think you should return them to my friend. They don't belong to you. And so he goes, oh, no, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. So he gets out the van and he walks around the back of the van and then he undoes the big double doors. There are the bags. He gets the bags down. He pulls out the drag bag handles. At this point, his mate, who was the one who actually nicked them, he'd been round to the shop. He comes back from the shop. He sees what's happened, that they've been discovered. And out loud, he says, oh, no, I knew we shouldn't have nicked them. They look so important. You know, we thought we'd put them in the back of the van, find out later what was in them, you know, like you do. And so, um, so, they, so Judy is kind of walking with these two guys back down the street. And Fiona, by, the time, by this time, she's found her mobile phone. And she's pressing the numbers. And then she looks up to see this Judy with these two huge men dragging these bags. And she's like, and eventually they arrive back. And at the moment that they come back to the house, the police arrive. They arrest these two blokes. Julia and Fiona are back together. And Fiona has been reunited with her precious bags. And as you can imagine, there is just one question that Fiona really wants to ask. She says, Judy, the one thing I don't get is how did you know that they were in the back of that van all the way up there? And Judy said, I, I, think, I think God told me. Well, as you can imagine, Fiona is now higher up the scale than she was. I'll tell you one last story. You know, every stage of life you're at presents opportunities that you don't get at other times. So right now, the stage of life we're at kind of revolves around the school gate. We've got these four kids, and one, one time I'm driving along with my wife. The kids weren't with us on this occasion, and Julia says to me, oh, a funny thing happened at school today. I said, what was that? And she mentions this particular mum that we both know quite well. She said, oh, so-and-so came up to me after school, and she says this to me, Julia says. She says, oh, Julia, I hear you've been talking to some of the other mums and helping them. Julia says, uh, yeah. She says, Julia, I think I need a session. She says, in fact, I think I need lots of sessions. And listen, Julia, I'm willing to pay. Now, I'm listening to this. My wife's telling me this as I'm driving along. And I'm saying, are you saying that one of the mums from school is willing to pay you to witness to her? Julia says, yeah. I said, that is fantastic. I said, how much are you going to charge? Because as far as I'm concerned, that has got to be more than the minimum wage. As I'm sure you'd agree. Well, look, in conclusion, this summer, as I'm sure you all know, England are going to go to the World Cup in South Africa. And by the time June comes round, everybody's going to think we're going to win the World Cup. And we know it's not going to happen. Yeah? We know, we know that, right? But we're all going to think it's going to happen. But let's just imagine for a second that it does. Let's imagine that we win the World Cup in July at that moment, we lift the World Cup aloft. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that at that point, heaven will be celebrating. But Luke 15, verse 7 says that when the next person walks down that long, beautiful drive, 
and comes in here and sits in one of these seats and they receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, at that moment, Luke 15 verse 7 says, all heaven will erupt. The angels will celebrate. England win the World Cup, heaven silence. Next person in Birmingham gives their life to Jesus Christ at Church Central, angels are celebrating. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's stand together, shall we?